Hey, Katie. Hey, Ben. Today, can we talk about the Bayes guy? Sure. <laughs> I am really disappointed by your lack of dad jokes on this one. I, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know that much about Bayes, so I'm going to learn a lot this episode. <laughs> you are listening to Linear Digressions. Okay, so uh, what what's his name? Something Bayes. Thomas? Thomas Bayes. Oh, okay. So... I think not an exciting name so he's like the the start with a guess guy right yeah that's not a bad way of of summarizing it so we're going to talk about bayesian statistics in this episode and i should acknowledge totally up front that a this is not my primary wheelhouse so we'll be skipping along the surface a little bit here uh b we have 10 minutes or 15 minutes so we're going to be skipping along the surface here um (laughs) And see that it gets pretty complicated pretty quickly. So we're going to be skipping along the surface here. I see. (laughs) Right. (laughs) All right. All right. So this is kind of a a Bayes stuff summary episode and some some cool other stuff aside from just Bayes theorem. Yeah. So in particular, we're going to we're going to get to empirical Bayes. uh, But I'm getting ahead of myself here. So, yeah, you had a that's not a bad place of starting uh, what you just said about what makes uh, something Bayesian. So Bayes theorem is a a very famous theorem in statistics. And it says that basically the probability of A given B is equal to, imagine a a fraction here, where the numerator of the fraction is the probability of B given A times the probability of A divided by, this is the denominator now, the probability of B. And so we we will walk through this in all its glory. But the idea is that that's the fundamental starting place for doing Bayesian statistics, is that you have... um, this formula, uh, and then that allows you to basically, the idea of doing Bayesian statistics is you think of yourself as sort of going through the world, and you think that there are processes that you're trying to study. Those processes have parameters, like, let's say, what is the batting average of a baseball player? So a Mm -hmm. parameter of their batting average is, well, their batting average basically is a parameter. It's like, what's the average number of times that they would hit a baseball? Uh, over an so infinite like number of at-bats. 0.25 or something would be one in four. Exactly. But that 0.25, you can't measure directly because you can't watch them bat an infinite number of times. Mm, I see. But you can watch them num- watch them bat a, a smaller number of times. And from that, you have some combination of your, what we call your prior, your idea of roughly what their batting average what you expect it to be. So like 0.25 is actually a really reasonable guess. You wouldn't expect it to be, you know, 0.9 and you wouldn't expect it to be 0.05. Right. So a good baseball player. (laughs) (laughs) So 0.25 is our starting place, our prior. Uh, Yeah. And then as you're watching this baseball player, say over the course of the season, then you're collecting uh, sort of data as you go, where every time uh, the baseball player goes up at bat, or I shouldn't say every time it goes up at bat, it's better to think of this over the course of like many at bats, you see that there's some fraction of baseballs that he hits, then your guess about what his actual sort of underlying batting average is, how good of a baseball player this is, is going to be a function of both your prior idea about how good he is, and what we call the likelihood, the data that you've gathered in the world. Hmm. So, so just kind of reframing this a different way, 
you've got your original odds, which for all intents and purposes could just be a guess based on what you know about the world or about baseball or whatever. And then for any given player, you've got this evidence adjustment, which you combine those two and you get the new odds that you hypothesize represent this player a little bit more accurately. Yeah, I think you've got the gist of it. Let me give a concrete example, and that might make it a little bit more clear. Mm -hmm. So let's suppose that you go to your doctor for some routine tests, and there's a test result that comes back from, like, let's say it's a blood test or something. And this test is usually negative if you're healthy, but it comes back positive. The question, uh, this is a classic question of, like, how much should you freak out about that? Because presumably Mm -hmm. you want to, you would prefer to be healthy. Um, So the fact that there's a positive result is a little bit unsettling. However, you also know that there's some probability that you can get false positives. So you can be healthy and then, you know, the test just accidentally measures positive. Mm -hmm. And so a classic question is, given the fact that we've seen this positive result, if we have some numbers about what the disease prevalence in the population is and the probability of true positives and false positives for this test, what's the probability that you have the disease? So specifically, let's say, if you actually have the disease, 80% of the time, this test is going to return positive. So it's not 100% sure to return positive, but most of the time the test is going to detect it if you're sick, let's say. But there's also, let's say, a 10% false positive rate. So 10% of the time you spuriously get a positive, even though you're a healthy person. So those are our two different are are two different rates at which depending on whether we're healthy or or not you can get a positive test back and then you also need to know have some estimate of what's the prevalence of the disease in the population as a whole so let's say that five percent of the population has this disease and 95 percent of the population is healthy with respect to you know whatever disorder and so given these numbers the question that you might try to answer with a, a a bayesian calculation is given that you've seen this positive outcome from the test, what's the probability that you have the disease? Make sense? That makes sense. Okay. So then it's a fairly straightforward calculation uh, using Bayes' theorem to figure out that probability, the probability that you have a, a disease given that you have a positive test result. And that's equal to uh, the probability that you have a positive test result given that you have a disease times the probability that you have the disease in the first place, or the, you know, mm-hmm. sort of like the prevalence of the disease over the entire population. So that those two factors multiplied by each other, divided by what we call a normalization factor. So sort of divided by all the different outcomes that can give you a positive test result. So specifically, there are two ways you can get a positive test result in this scenario. You can get a positive test result because you have the disease and it truly detects it. You can also get a positive test result because you don't have the disease and there's just a false positive and you got a little bit unlucky. Right. And so you need to multiply together the probability of each of those events happening times the likelihood that you have the disease and that you don't have the disease, respectively. So there's two two multiplications that you have there. Mm-hmm. And then if you add them together, that gives you sort of all the different ways that you can get a positive test. And so the ratio of the ways that you get the positive test from having a disease divided by all the different ways that you can get the positive test gives you the probability that you have the disease given that you've seen the positive test. And so in this particular example, 
Do you have so, do you have a calculator handy? We can calculate uh, it from these numbers. I don't. Do you? Oh, I do. Okay. So the numerator, the numerator is the probability that we get a positive test, given that we have the disease. So we said that that was 80%. 80%, so yeah. 0 0.8. And then we have to multiply that by the probability of us having the disease just because we're a member of the population. So we said 5% of people in the population as a whole have this disease. So this is 0.8 times 0 0.05. So the numerator of our, of our ratio here is 0 0.04. But then we have to divide by the normalization factor. So that's going to be, again, 0 0.8 times 0 0.05. So that's, so that's the probability that we get a positive result and we have the disease. And then we also have to add the possibility that we get a positive result, but we don't have the disease. So if we don't have the disease, there's a 95% chance of that overall. And then there's a 10% chance if we are healthy that we'll get a positive result from the test. Mm -hmm. And so if we put this all together into the Googler, then the, the number that I get back is just shy of 30%. So even though I've gotten a positive test result overall, I still probably don't need to be extremely concerned yet because there's only a 30% chance, given the Bayesian calculation that I've just done, that I actually have the disease. So earlier on, you said we were going to talk about empirical bays, and we're just talking about bays. So, uh, how is empirical bays kind of a alteration on just simple Bayes theorem? It's not exactly an alteration of the of Bayes theorem. We're always using Bayes theorem, but let me pontificate for a moment about a couple of the things that make Bayesian statistics kind of hard sometimes. So the first is that the denominator in your Bayes theorem, what's called the normalization, that's mm -hmm. really hard because what you're doing there is you're basically enumerating all of the possible things that could happen in the world and their probabilities. And sometimes that's really, really hard to to know or to, in particular, to write as a, as a function. Uh, and so sometimes that's mm -hmm. where you need to have fancy um, you know, simulations that you're running to try to figure out what that denominator is. Interesting. It seems like that could both get very, very long and also be very difficult to come up with because there's so many, so often there are so many different possibilities that can lead to an observed result. Yeah, those normalizations can be pretty nasty. And those normalizations are important too because that's how you get a probability out of Bayes yeah. theorem. Yeah. <laughs> the, the denominator is kind of important. Right, right. Uh, the other thing that can be really hard about Bayesian's, well, all the all the pieces of Bayesian statistics can be kind of tricky, but priors are another sort of famous one that can, in particular, when you first start learning about Bayesian statistics, I, I even still feel this way sometimes. They can priors can feel very slippery because uh, it's this idea of like a prior is supposed to be some kind of some kind of something that, well, the way we explained it is we said it's sort of like what you think you know about the world already. Mm -hmm. It's but like that, your starting place. Yeah, but that isn't always exactly the best way to think about it. Because um, there's a lot of scenarios in which like you don't know that much about the world. And so coming at it from that angle is not necessarily going to give you a great prior. So, you know, you do want your prior to capture something like what are reasonable expectations before I start collecting data about what might be going on. But maybe I don't really know that much. And so I want to have what's called like an uninformative prior, a prior that like 
doesn't really impose any structure on the problem before I start collecting data. Is that like starting with just a random guess kind of thing or like it's we'll just guess 50-50 or whatever it may be? Yeah, so an example of like what's usually taken as a pretty uninformative prior is the idea that all values are equally likely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's an Got example. It. Depending on the situation, you know, that may or may not make sense. Um, but also keep in mind that you're going to be multiplying your prior times your likelihood and doing a bunch of stuff with that. And so based on how easy that multiplication is to do, like maybe if you have two really complicated functions that you need to multiply together and then, you know, who knows, maybe there's some integrations or something you have to do. There's There can also be mathematical tractability issues. So depending on in particular, what form you want your posterior to take, the, the distribution that you want to have after you've done this multiplication, there are certain priors that like will give you a Gaussian as a, as a posterior, for example, and maybe you want to have like a Gaussian be the output of your Bayes theorem. So you have to make a special choice of prior as the input in order for like the integrals to shake out the right way. Anyway, the point so is odd. that yeah. priors, yeah, priors are kind of they're they're kind of tricky. It takes a while to to get used to them and to feel comfortable with them. And this is where empirical base comes in. And mm-hmm. so, yes, that was a long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the idea of empirical base is basically trying to avoid you know some of these thorny issues with priors by kind of bootstrapping off of the data that I might have already taken about the situation. Oh, interesting. So you're not just starting with a guess or uh, a guess based on the what you know about the world. You're actually starting with something real, some actual data that you've collected about the world or about this phenomenon or about your baseball player. Yeah, I would say like the way I would articulate it maybe is that my prior isn't driven by maybe necessarily theory or mm. mathematical tractability so much as it's driven by just what I've observed in the world before because I have some data on this situation that I've that I've already collected. So is that where the is that where the term empirical base comes from? Because you're you're kind of bootstrapping your algorithm with empirical uh, data. Yeah, I think I think so. Yeah, that was how I always read it anyway. Mm. And so let me give you an example, and this will be my closing my closing example. But there's a little bit of a there's a little bit of a hook that we're going to get to here in a second. So let's go. Let's go back to my baseball player example. The idea is I'm interested in knowing my, there's some baseball player that I'm studying. I'm interested in knowing this baseball player's batting average. What's a reasonable prior that I can put in as, a, as my starting guess for the batting average for this player? Well, let's say that this player has been in the major leagues for the last five years. And let's also suppose that like, there hasn't been any significant changes in this player's performance. Like we don't have any reason to think that they're necessarily any better or any worse than they were for the last five years. They're not injured or anything. Um, and I'm interested in trying to guess. I'm halfway through the the season, and I'm interested in making some kind of guess about what this player's batting average is going to be in the second half of the season. So a, a totally reasonable prior that I can pick here is let's just say I'm going to guess that this person's batting average is the mean of every uh, every season that I've already seen out of this player so far. Got it. That seems like a really reasonable place to start. Yeah. So that would be an example of kind of an empirical 
Bayesian way of thinking about the prior is just take your prior as the mean over all the um, at-bats that I've seen out of this player before. And then I'm also going to probably, I don't usually want my prior to just be a single value. It'll be some kind of distribution about uh, some values. So I'll say that like, I think that batting average is usually a Gaussian and the top of that bell curve, the middle point is, you know, that the Gaussian is going to be centered at the mean. And then there's also going to be some width to that Gaussian that I have to guess. Again, that's not something that I know the actual value, but I can make educated guesses about what the standard deviation might be. Um, And then I'm off and running and I can use that coupled with, you know, any evidence that I'm collecting about how the how the batter's performing right now to make some guesses about how I think the batter's going to be performing in the future. Here's the hook that I will leave you with because I think it's an interesting question and has an interesting answer as it happens. So let's suppose that instead of trying to guess the batting average of a single player, I actually have an entire baseball team. And I have some historical data on this whole baseball team too, like, you know, going back to the beginning of the season or back a couple years. And so I have some batters who are pretty good and I have batters who are not so good. The question is then, now that I have a whole baseball team's worth of statistics here, does this, uh, should this change my batting average estimate for the player that I'm interested in? Is there any way that I can or I should take information from all the other players and somehow use that to inform my estimate of any one player individually? That is an interesting question. My intuition says no, but my meta intuition says you wouldn't be asking this question if the answer was a simple no. I think your your meta intuition is more correct in this case, but I think it's an interesting enough case that I'm going to just leave it there for the time being. And in a future episode, in, in, in the near future, we will actually unpack this case fully because it's actually pretty interesting the way that you can sort of hack empirical bays in this, in this interesting way. Linear Digressions is a creative commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to lineardigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at lineardigressions.com and katie at lineardigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at lindigressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.